Welcome to the Essay for FAs Advisor Podcast channel. Last week, I introduced you to another Seeking Alpha podcast, Behind the Idea, hosted by my esteemed colleagues Mike Taylor and Daniel Schwartzman, with parts one and two of their book review of Joel Greenblatt's You Can Be a Stock Market Genius. Today and tomorrow, we'll be running parts three and four, final installments of the series, and a fitting send-off of the summer when it is traditional to offer book reviews for beachgoers. I'd add that, whatever the season, it's always worthwhile to learn from books. Enjoy the show and subscribe to Behind the Idea. This podcast is brought to you by Nationwide. Nationwide's New Heights fixed indexed annuities now offer the flexibility of earlier withdrawals with an optional living benefit rider at additional cost. Learn more at nationwidenewheights.com. On this week's Behind the Idea, we go to part three of our Joel Greenblatt You Can Be a Stock Market Genius series. We're going to chapters five and six, which are a continuation of the hidden places that you can look for to find compelling Greenblatt ideas. While the areas, bankruptcies, stub stocks, recapitalizations, don't excite us as much, some of the principles Greenblatt lays out, for example, on leverage, when to hold and when to sell, and company incentives caught our attention. This isn't the section that stays with everybody, but it still has some key parts that stick. Check them out on this week's Behind the Idea. Welcome to Behind the Idea. I am Mike Taylor. And I'm Daniel Schwartzman. This is part three of our special series breaking down one of our favorite books, Joel Greenblatt's You Can Be a Stock Market Genius. Last time, we talked about chapters three and four, the ones that everyone remembers. Spinoffs, rights offerings, merger securities, the classic Greenblatt special situation playbook. In this episode, we hit some of the more obscure parts of the market, bankruptcies, restructurings, stub stocks, leaps, and options. We're going to try and pick out the patterns and lessons from these disparate hidden places and see what still applies to investors today in 2019. Before we begin, Behind the Idea is the podcast that breaks down what makes great investment analysis work using articles and ideas from the Seeking Alpha ecosystem and books by Joel Greenblatt. Nothing on this podcast should be taken as investment advice of any sort. We might discuss stocks in this episode, and if we discuss any stocks we own positions in, we'll disclose those positions at the end of the podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by Seeking Alpha Pro Plus. Try Pro Plus for 30 days free at SeekingAlpha.com slash ProPlus. That's SeekingAlpha.com slash P-R-O-P-L-U-S. And quickly before we get started, listeners, just wanted to say podcast ratings, they help. And if you have the time to leave us a podcast rating on any of Apple's products for now, Apple Podcasts, iTunes, wherever you listen, it will help us to get this podcast out to more listeners as the rating 
picks up. And also, if you have a chance to leave a review and have any feedback, we listen to it all. If you have sort of complaints, it's good to email us at btipod at seekingalpha.com because then we can actually learn more. But the reviews and the ratings are super helpful, and that's kind of what people see first. So if you have the chance, drop us a review. If you have a chance to just put a number, a rating, that would also be great. We'd really, really appreciate it, and it will help us to make Behind the Idea better for you. Okay. Thanks, Daniel. <laughs> ratings, rate us. You can just give us give us honest ratings. That's fine. They don't have They're to right be. Honest. They don't have to be great ratings. We would love it if they were. Let's get into the episode, though. So, chapters five and six. You can be a stock market genius. Let's start with chapter five, Daniel. What's chapter five about? So, chapter five is less heralded as we we sort of. As you mentioned in the intro, people think I think more about chapter three and to some degree chapter four, but chapter five is a continuation of the areas, the hidden areas of the market that Greenblatt talked about in the beginning of the book. He's going to some really dumpster diving situations. He called it slumming at some point. Uh, We're talking about bankruptcies. We're talking about restructuring situations. And we're just talking about, again, ways to try to identify something that other people aren't seeing. I think just on the face of it, it's still interesting today, even when you think about quant-driven strategies that might not be able to pick up on this sort of thing. So it's the idea of continuing to use your research to find opportunities that other people aren't seeing. And so I think bankruptcies, we can start with first, is interesting because he essentially says that bankruptcies are not not things that you expect to hold for a long time for the obvious reason that if a stock if a company goes bankrupt it's unlikely to be one of the best companies in the world let's put it that way it's possible you can be a decent company and just overlever or it's possible you can get hit with a bad cycle or there are other reasons that you might fall into bankruptcy that don't mean that you're the company has a terrible business but it's unlikely to be a great business. And so you should be thinking about your holding time accordingly. And what's interesting about the lead to the chapters, he says a lot of familiar things about the mismatches about how, for example, the people who end up with bankruptcy post bankruptcy common stock are bondholders who don't actually want stock. So you get that same sort of mismatch that you get in a spinoff, but at the same time, you can narrow it down to the better companies. You can look for companies that were temporarily overlevered or whatever else. And then he proceeds to go and look at the bad companies as, you know, as go slumming. And so I thought that was interesting. And so that's just sort of the approach to bankruptcy. So any, any thoughts on that before we go to, into any of the specific examples? Yeah. And this might just be my own sort of level of experience talking, but he mentions don't buy stock in companies that have declared bankruptcy. That's interesting to me. We had a situation earlier this year where we covered Pacific Gas and Electric, and (laughs) I think we actually bottom ticked it covering it uh, amid the bankruptcy filings, and then the stock continued to rise, and it was sort of a puzzling situation. 
I think the main point there, though, is just that the common stock in bankruptcies is usually a very risky area. What I wanted to get to, though, was he mentions buying bonds, buying bank debt, and buying trade claims. My first question is, this book is aimed at the little guy, more or less. The book is aimed at the little guy, but my question is, are these you know, bonds I think of as being quite large chunks to chew up, to chew. And maybe that's different in bankruptcy. Uh, bank debt, I also think of something as, I don't think of these as being investable for the common man and woman. And so I was wondering how big do you have to be to buy bankruptcy securities? Is this really as applicable for the aspiring stock market gen- genius as common stocks are or some of these other securities? I just don't know. So the way I understood that was, I think bonds, I I don't know, I have trouble locating bonds through TD Ameritrade when I occasionally kind of look and try to single out individual, especially higher yielding bonds. So I don't know uh, what the accessibility is. I think FINRA, you can pull up the pricing at least. But yeah, I I think there's some accessibility to bonds. But the way I understood that section was more don't read the idea of trading bankruptcy situations as by the queue, by the stock that has a queue at the end of its name. Uh, P- PCG, PG&E doesn't have that yet, but it's in the pre-bankruptcy phase. They've declared bankruptcy. They're still working through it. I don't know what the legal reason is that you have to have a queue or don't have to have a queue, but, you know, and that stock, by the way, has come back down quite a bit since, yeah, more or less doubling when we covered it. And kind of, it's kind of flat or slightly down since then. Yeah, depending on, I can't remember the exact date we recorded, but it's, yeah, it's bounced around. But I, his point is, don't try to trade those. And if anything, he sort of alludes to something that I've heard from smart seeking alpha authors in the past, which is actually, that's the time to short because oftentimes equity value sort of hangs around, even though it's very unlikely that the equity shareholders will be made whole. Under but, underreaction, bag holders, that kind of thing. Yeah, well, and you know, Sun Edison was an example I can remember from whenever they went bankrupt, 2015 or thereabouts. That was a bad case of people hoping that something would turn, and it never. GT Advanced was another one, also solar related, a little bit. But anyway, I think what he's saying is after the bankruptcy. Once, you know, they're not trading and then they have to release certain types of statements. I can't remember what the form was, but there's a specific form that you can watch for. He even, I think, suggests that it's not one that, at least at the time, was filed through the SEC. He talks about a registration statement. You can get it from a private document service. Again, this is 22 years ago, so I don't, we're not fully versed in what you can do now, but the idea is that you get to see what's going on after they come out of bankruptcy and that's where that mismatch comes because you'll have you know right. let's say 98% of the remaining value of the firm goes to the bondholders who've had their debt deal restructured and then they don't really want it they want to kind of sell out so that they can salvage something of their original principal and that's where if you step in and you have the right sort of company you can you can do well and so i think that's the uh, that's the emphasis. I think it's probable that smarter investors can find a way to get bonds that, for example, 
have a good chance of getting some recovery value, but that aren't being priced that way. But I think it's more of an emphasis. And he does throw in little bits about, you know, for you more sophisticated investors, you might do this or that. But I think that's that's how I understood it. And that's how I understood where you can play bankruptcies. Okay. Yeah, I my reaction to the chapter is just kind of like, okay, that's interesting. I'm probably not going to explore these opportunities too often. But your explanation kind of puts it in a little bit clearer light, especially with the emphasis on the sort of forced selling dynamics going on and the fact that the newly issued stock may well sort of be under undue selling pressure. I don't have, but I just don't have a lot of takeaways from this. I don't know. For whatever reason, it didn't inspire me the way that spinoffs did. I think he was at his, his hottest, his, his best momentum was in the previous chapters. So let's, I, I want to get to restructuring because I actually think that I actually like the case study there quite a bit. But before we do, you mentioned that you had a story about his case study for bankruptcy listeners is Charter Medical which I think is a psychological hospital, yeah, mental hospital company, which anybody listening now will be aware of companies like American Addiction Centers and Acadia Healthcare <laughs> that don't have the best reputations. But he points out, you know, not a great company. He has a great line that I want to get to in a second. But before I do, what, what was your story here? Growing up in the Midwest during the... I guess how it fits into Greenblatt's narrative is after the restructuring and as they kind of, during the part of the story where he says that revenues grew and the, the company actually wound up doing pretty well, that was accompanied by a series of television advertisements airing in southeastern Wisconsin, at least, and probably elsewhere in the region with slogans like charter is there and, uh, go to charter charter is here for you. And that became, uh, it was a less sensitive time. And I was just a, you know, playground school kid. It was a catchphrase among my peers to, if someone had a bad idea, like, uh, let's not play tag today. Then someone else would say charter is there for you or like, you're crazy, you know? And so that was a big, uh, catchphrase cultural phenomenon from my early 90s upbringing. I also changed schools and some mean kids at my school started a rumor that I went to charter. (laughs) Not that I changed schools, but that I had been committed to a, a private mental institution. And so I just wanted to share kind of my personal experience with the charter phenomenon and the fact that the booming business did definitely I mean, awareness of the thing must have skyrocketed during that ad campaign. So the commercials were on all the time. So just an interesting way that this kind of financial world stuff does bleed out into the real world in these bizarre ways. Charter is there for you. God, what a, what a. <laughs> it's tough can growing I, up in the Midwest, huh? Like? Can I have your, can I have your cho- chocolate pudding? Charter's there for you, man. No. <laughs> it's just like. You know, in 2019, that's definitely something, and we, you know, that we would teach kids not to say. I think, for the most part, but at the time, it was a common phrase among all the school kids, really, and kind of, you know, 
a little bit clever in that sort of mean-spirited, childish way. Man, that is a cultural legacy. Yeah, yeah. So, look, I don't endorse that joke. I wouldn't make it, but uh, I thought it was it would be nice to add some color to at least the bankruptcy section with a little bit of personal experience uh, with Charter. Yes, thank you. That was <laughs> – I just – we had Bob's Discount Furniture and Bob's Stores. We did not have – uh, lots of bobs in New England. Bob's but. discount furniture is there for you. <laughs> it's not not quite. Anyway, <laughs> <I'm the same. laughs> we we could we could spend a long time down there. Yeah, that yeah, restructurings. <laughs> no, so the one thing on bankruptcy I want to say is just using that example. Greenblatt says, you know, this isn't. He says I'm going slumming. He says, got it off my conscience that you should go to good stocks. Now I'm going sl- slumming. Right. And he basically just plays a relative value play. He just says it looks really cheap on relative value, even if you discount for the amount of leverage they still have coming out. But then he says he he was able to sell the stock for a large gain, but then got lucky to get rid of it before it pulled back. And I did a little very trivial research and found a New York Times article about the company going bankrupt again in 2000 or 2001 or thereabouts. Yeah. Yeah, I think that there's maybe that gets to my earlier point on a more serious and specific level about how there's less momentum here in this chapter. That's a kind of recurring pattern among all the case studies here is Greenblatt says, I got lucky here. This broke my way. And I think there is a bit more of a speculative aspect to this. And maybe that's partly why this is in a separate chapter, sort of rhetorically and structurally in the book that they're, these kinds of opportunities are sort of separate and distinct. Everything feels a bit riskier in this section, and there's more of a speculative aspect. I also wonder whether Greenblatt did more homework and had more edge than it was either left on the editing room floor or uh, than he felt like it was valuable to go into here. There's a bit of false humility in Greenblatt's presentation. I wonder if that's part of the story here or whether he did just kind of get lucky. That's certainly a possibility as well. Yeah, I buy, I don't think that part is false. I buy that he views himself as lucky here, maybe disciplined. And I'll get to a a bigger point that he makes in a second. But also I do think he is underselling the amount of research he probably did, especially given this is a period where he runs a really concentrated portfolio. You you know, I bet he was aware of their commercial plan of their ad advertising plan, for example, like those are things, or, you know, I imagine that he does a lot more research on the companies than he gives away in this book and not that it invalidates the book, but yeah, I think that's a worthy caveat. I think there's a bit of a lower conviction here or a bit of him not giving up the entire goods. And maybe it is trading discipline. I don't think it's an accident that he mentions his selling strategy in this chapter. And that and that's that's what I wanted to get to is that he says, and this is something we've talked about, reference in the past. I know you've referenced it with respect to the advanced six investment you made. Yeah. And just the idea of trade the bad ones, invest in the good ones. Which is an interesting strategy. Uh, Like when you sort of come right down to it, it's essentially if something's really just a value you can't turn away from and there's a catalyst or there's some reason to think the value might appreciate, get it, but wait for the catalyst and then get out. Whereas the 
invest in the good ones if you think it's worth holding after it reaches fair value. I don't know. Do you, what do you make of that just dichotomy? Does it make sense? Are investors able to do that? Or do you think it's like one position that would be contrast is just, just look for the good ones. Like why bother with this trading stuff? If you can just look for the good ones, what do you think? Yeah, I don't know. I taking a weird sort of quant factor investing approach. I wonder if it's something along the lines of stocks that are just cheap are mostly just exposed to the value factor and outperform on the basis that they're cheap, but better businesses have higher earnings quality and some other additional factors that are not fully correlated with value. So you just have a portfolio of risk factors that's more robust if you invest in good businesses that are cheap versus you only have really one opportunity to win if it's just a more concentrated and riskier proposition to own a cheap stock. And when it's no longer cheap, there's really no more justification to own it. I kind of get the rationale from that perspective. I also think it's just part of Greenblatt's overall disposition and probably one of the better edges that he's had as an investor is more, I'm just going to sell this when I'm ready. If I think if I made money, then I'm just going to move. I'm just going to move on. He doesn't, I think there's a mental flexibility there that we've talked about before with this is a good idea, but now it's done and I'm, I'm done. I'm getting out. And I, I think that that's actually a pretty valuable insight. And I think that there's something really, your selling strategy has to match your overall investment philosophy on one hand. On the other hand, Alex Imus, a uh, economist, shout out to Alex Imus. He was at UCSD when I went to grad school there. He wrote a really interesting paper that was published earlier this year about how Active portfolio managers are good at picking stocks to buy, but then their selling behavior is worse than random. Like you're better off as a stock picker picking your stocks based on security selection, but then for whatever reason, psychological or otherwise, selling is just so hard that I think one of the things Greenblatt's doing here that's maybe effective is to just systematically sell when you reach a certain threshold for a lot of the opportunities. And if you're systematic instead of discretionary, then you're maybe less likely to make the mistakes that make a lot of investors sort of lose whatever advantage they had on uh, when they bought the security at the right time. So those are the things I kind of think of. Okay, fair enough. So I want to go into restructuring because I think what's interesting to me about restructuring and what his point here is that companies will remodel their business for whatever reason, and then you can take advantage of that. He has two great case studies here. You know, when we say remodel, it may mean selling off poor performing or non-core units. It can mean like a pre-spinoff situation. It can mean a lot of, you know, similar things. It's It reminds me of some of the parts investing, which I think Greenblatt's point here is that you should be looking for some sort of catalyst. But I like the, the the examples he has because they're, I think, really compelling. And I think you can see how they would work. Greenman Brothers is the first one. And this is more of the hidden asset approach, right? He 
makes a humorous comment about how it was his wife who spotted this great new kids store called Noodle Cadoodle. And that happened to be owned by Greenman Brothers. But Greenman Brothers' main business was this toy distribution business that was losing money but trading well below book value. And so you've got sort of a cigar butt leading business and then this strong growth business that's going to need capital. And so you put two and two together and you can see how they might sell the the money loser to then fund the growth of the other business. And indeed, that's how it played out. And it's just kind of a, it, it's, again, it feels so easy in retrospect, but it's not an easy thing to w- look for. Yeah, I'm skeptical. Of, I just am going to come out and say I'm skeptical <laughs> of this. I think of a lot of opportunities where this just goes the other way. He mentions, in fairness to him, you know, that this could easily have not happened, that the bad business could have overtaken whatever value was available in the good business. Yeah, I, there's there's certainly a bit of luck there, but I think it's also also just as a funny footnote for a lot of the companies, they're sort of the green-black curse on a lot of these companies. Noodle Cadoodle was bought by Zany Brainy in 2000 and then for $35 million. I can't figure out whether or not that was above you brainy above <laughs> the 90s like and yeah. well and also i was reading like power rangers was a major feature at noodle Cadoodle, and they were you know they were big on non they they at the time weren't necessarily pushing towards here are the girls kit toys and here are the boys toys but um i did a little reading about this but then zany brainy itself went bankrupt in 2001 so end of the story is not so great for noodle Cadoodle, even though it was a growth story. I think it pulls another great green black line again, more for his mindset, but he says something along the lines of, and this is probably my favorite quote from these chapters, something like I probably won't invest in the next Microsoft or Walmart. I figure since I'm no wizard at forecasting the next big retail or technological trend, I'll probably miss out on a pile of losers too. For me, this is a fair trade-off. And I just, again, this is sort of goes back to, he's, he's consistent in this book. In chapter two, he talks about Peter Lynch and Warren Buffett and how their genius is essentially, and he's not. And I think in the bigger picture, not the stock market genius sense, but I think that's, yeah, I don't know. I thought, so I thought I liked that case study and just, I thought this was intuitive, even if it is hard to replicate. I think general dynamics is easier to kind of spot, though, again, you have to kind of pull it together. What was interesting about it is there was a Dutch auction tender. The management team wasn't selling any of their shares in the tender. So you have that insider queue and they were trying to sell off non-core businesses to focus on their core businesses. And he made a couple of, he sort of was able to back out the math to see what the core businesses should be trading for and figure out that if you sort of dividend out the proceeds from the non-core, you do well. But I think more to the point, he, again, for all of Greenblatt's sort of quantitative or catalyst-driven points, I think the point of incentives, where the insiders were going with their money, and also this idea of you know, this is in the context of the end of the Cold War and a defense company trying to reorient itself a little bit. And his point was, I figure if they're focused on their core businesses, those core businesses will probably do well, will probably close whatever valuation gap they have with their peers, etc. And so I thought that was a really 
that to me feels more replicable. We talked about Honeywell, for example, which we've, we've both invested in their spinoffs and I used to own the parent. And that's a company that does a nice job of sort of shedding non-core businesses and kind of refocusing on what they do and getting better at it. And so I think you can still spot that sort of thing. And so that was, those were the interesting things for me from the restructuring section. Yeah, I guess feels a little bit more like we're just at company level fundamental analysis. I'm uh, just a little bit. And then the restructuring, especially if you're uncertain that it's going to happen, that just seems like a very speculative thing, but I'm probably not giving enough credit for the evidence gathering process there. Well, it's just interesting to think of how, I think your point is this sounds like fundamental analysis is how does this fit into the special situations bucket? Can we, is a, it's essentially hidden asset events investing, but yeah, the balance between some of the parts and sit there and wait versus is there a catalyst that will unlock this? Is it likely that catalyst will play out, et cetera? I think those are good. I think that's a good point and a good question about how this section fits into the book and the style. Right. Well, I guess I, sorry to suck the air out of the room, but I, I, I just didn't, I'm coming down a little bit. Like this chapter wasn't as exciting for me. I wanted to share a quick note about Pro Plus before we go on. Pro Plus offers you unique content to get more out of Seeking Alpha. It's our subscription product for experienced investors, and it offers you exclusive newsletters on short ideas, tech, income, and soon small and microcap stocks. You get exclusive ideas from some of our top authors. You get seven days of early access to our top ideas. You get live alerts on some of our best content, which can also be categorized by those themes. These are all things Pro Plus offers you, so you can save time on Seeking Alpha while still getting all the best stuff. If you're interested in Pro Plus, try it out at SeekingAlpha.com slash Pro Plus. That's SeekingAlpha.com slash P-R-O-P-L-U-S. The annual plan comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee, so you can really get a feel for the platform. Check it out. But maybe if we go to chapter six. (laughs) I was about to say, for me, chapter six is one of the odder chapters of the book. I don't know if you felt the same way. I think that, I don't know. I think it has one of the more intriguing insights about the whole thing, the whole noodle kadoodle. Basically, I think here is where Greenblatt confesses to a critical aspect of his strategy that he kind of alludes to in previous chapters, but really gets into here, which is the importance of leverage in magnifying positive returns. And I think it, he's just much more enthusiastic in embracing leverage than other notable great investors, especially Warren Buffett, at least in the way he speaks about investing, is very bearish on the concept of leverage. Now, in practice, he does use leverage pretty substantially, but uh, at least the sort of dogma and mythology around Buffett is that leverage is bad. Greenblatt is completely the other way. He seems to just like eat leverage up. He loves it. And I think it's 
maybe boils down to a very simple phenomenon, which is that if you're focused on intrinsic value, you can tolerate volatility better. If you have a defined buy and sell strategy, you can exploit volatility to your advantage. And there is a fundamental reality about stock investing, which is that your downside is capped at a total loss of principle and your upside is unlimited. And so leveraged opportunities that preserve that limited loss structure like leaps and warrants and options are potentially very attractive for accelerating your path towards upside performance versus what you would get if you bought just underlying assets. So I think this is interesting because it's a bit unorthodox to be this sort of pro-leverage. And I think there's a rationale there that makes sense, especially if you just look at stock returns as having an attractive return distribution overall. So yeah, the chapter is basically about balance sheets on companies and levering up and how that can magnify returns. It's about leaps. It's about various ways to achieve a kind of levered portfolio, whether it's the companies you invest in or it's the securities you select. What do you think, Daniel? Is this Are you buying leverage as a potential return magnifier? Does it always work in investors' favor? What do you think? Well, I think it's, I think your last question, it certainly doesn't always work. But uh, yeah, I I think the options, sort of the way you were saying bankruptcies don't appeal to you, options, I just haven't had the patience to kind of go through the process of learning how to use them in my own portfolio, how they would fit. To me, it reduces you to a time frame where I feel like one of my advantages is that I don't have a time frame. I can just kind of sit there. And so warrants, I sit a lot. I sit a lot. A lot. Sitting. <laughs> Unhealthy amount of sitting. But the warrants I think is interesting. You know, all of the, for example, TARP warrants for the banks. I think there are interesting plays out there. Uh, leaps, you know, it just didn't, that didn't appeal to me. I thought the aspect, though, that was more interesting to me about this was how it related to the corporate finance, because he also, he walks through, and I found this to be the best explanation of the process of, what is it, optimizing your balance sheet and actually taking on debt by so that you can, in essence, by paying interest, it ends up not being taxes, and so you end up being able to dole out more money to your bondholders on one side and to your uh, shareholders on the other per, on a per share basis. And so he talks about recapitalizations. And I thought that was really interesting. And I think it's because the way I think about leverage is on the company level. And I think about companies that have leverage. And then when things go wrong, John Hempton has a great art blog on this somewhere about the idea of it's hard to average down when you're dealing with a company with leverage. And that's where I, that's where I have more of my philosophical struggles and or actionable struggles is when a company is, has leverage on their balance sheet and, and their income statement, of course. And if anything goes wrong, all of a sudden that can spiral out badly. Even if it means just loss of capital, that's still, 
you know, if I try to, I don't quite emulate six to eight positions, but I'm rarely over 20 positions and, you know, maybe half of them are more concentrated. So I'm not looking to, I'm not super eager for one position to go down badly. And I struggle with how to deal with that, you know, and so that's where, that's the part that's more interesting to me is that sort of balance sheet optimization and what it means for the stocks you invest in. Well, I think you hit on something that's, that's actually partly an argument for looking for investments that have cleaner balance sheets. One thing I think about a lot that I see debates on Twitter occasionally about whether you should have a mortgage, which is effectively leveraging your own personal asset base and whether whether to pay it off and just pay rent and then invest the difference in the stock market or whatever, or sorry, rather, what, whether or not to pay off your mortgage and, and what's, the, what's the optimal thing for an individual investor to do. And I keep coming back that like, if you have a mortgage, you're, you get close to exhausting your borrowing capacity for a lot of households. If you don't have a mortgage, then you can still borrow at some time in the future. I feel like that preserves your optionality and that's an attractive thing. I say this as someone who has a mortgage, but uh, I think that people may undervalue the absence of a mortgage or absence of leverage already on your balance sheet as an opportunity to lever up in the future. And I think that's the Greenblatt's argument about the power of leverage and adding leverage to the balance sheet means that in, in a lot of cases, you're looking for companies that are below their debt capacity now that have the opportunity to borrow additional money and take advantage of some of these opportunities. So in a weird way, he's comfortable with leverage, but I also think that there's a takeaway here that's more to the tune of uh, underlevered companies may be presenting some of the better opportunities given this sort of generalized analysis about what leverage does in corporate finance. Right. It's not a card you can play a lot, right? I mean, that's sort of what you're you're getting at. And that's in that, it, yeah, I agree with you. And that's why I try, I try to look for clean balance sheets because I know that it gives that optionality where then something good can happen. I think it also harks back to the restructuring a little bit, which is what's interesting about the restructuring part is in part trying to get into the heads of what might happen. I agree it's fundamental analysis, but it's where might they go with their current asset portfolio. And so I think that's something here as well is just recap is one way to do that. And it can, and it can be an opportunity for people to, to, to get, you know, get a payout. But to me, that's also where things feel short term oriented, where like you, like I, I said that you can only play this card once and it's sort of like, it's the same as with upping, you know, going more leverage to do more of a stock buyback. It feels good, but in the end of the day, mm-hmm. let's say a recession's coming. Is that really what I want my portfolio companies to do? Or would I rather them like not be super optimal right now, but still have a ton of cards to play if things go down? And so I don't know. It's it's a really I think it's a wider scope than what Greenblatt is getting at in this chapter, but it's interesting to me that an investor I really respect is so comfortable with this sort of situation. And I guess that was so I do agree with you that that is an interesting insight and a key point of this chapter.
even if I don't care as much about going into the leaps examples or anything else. Yeah, I think it's more probably what every reader can take away from this chapter is there's a range of different opportunities and risks associated with leverage and probably each person has their own sort of should have their own approach to leverage, whether it's via uh, derivatives like leaps and options, or whether it's through corporate balance sheets, you should be aware of the positives and negatives of different levels of leverage and make sure that you understand your own sort of position with respect to that. I think people may get into trouble not knowing that source of sources of their returns may be derived from leverage, not understanding the downside characteristics of call options or leaps, not understanding how a corporate balance sheet affects the earnings potential of a given common stock. So that to me is kind of, it's good that Greenblatt demonstrates this kind of flexibility about the issue because I think it gives readers an opportunity to evaluate for themselves how they feel and whether or not they want to, or to what extent they would use the tool of leverage in their own investing arsenal. An arsenal of tools, toolbox of tools. You get it. I think your toolbox, your arsenal of tools, either works. Quiver, uh, tool quiver. Tool quiver. You got a tool quiver. I got a tool quiver. We all got one. Greenblatt's got one. Yeah. All right. Well, the, the, yeah, I think it's, a, again, I think there's all, there's takeaways there and it's just an interesting, I think what just, you know, what we've still got an episode left to kind of wrap things up, but I think he does a nice job. You get a sense of, we've, we've joked about how much you get a sense of his humor and his humility and his sort of corniness, et cetera, but also you get a sense of his investing philosophy in a way that you have to come with some maturity to not just say, do this. Like this is not a literal apply this step by step by step and you'll be a genius. But a way of thinking, I think it's quite good. And, and a chapter like this gives more background on how he does it and whether it fits for you or not. So, Yeah, I think you're right. Greenblatt stands out as a good instructor, a good coach, a good teacher in, in these chapters and gets people to sort of consider the possibilities, which is great. But I think... What I sense from our reactions here is that we are sort of in a, more of a mixed bag in, in episode three of the Greenblatt experience. And I think that's okay, but I think it's also a reason to keep this episode a little bit tight. So Daniel, my uh, suggestion is that we leave it right around here. Any favorite jokes or quotes you want to save or share before we hop off? Yeah, sure. The Ginsu knives joke, I thought, was just like such a both a sort of obviously not going to last, not going to stand the test of time. A sort of topical joke. Also, just like, is the joke really there that the name is Ginsu and that it's funny to sell knives? It's just like a very it's just it's peak dad, I think. I'm throwing in some free Ginsu knives with this chapter is Actually, there's a bit of an absurdist flavor to it. I, it's a it's a high leverage opportunity, a lot of risk, a lot of a lot of potential upside in the joke, and the fact that he typographically created a coupon for the, end of the job. <laughs> that was really the extra a final flourish. Yeah, 
I I remember Vico or Venco or something like that. That was Cutco. the knives. Cut maybe it was Cutco. My high school buddies sold Cutco knives. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if my brother ever did or if his friends ever did, but yeah, that was around. I think for the joke, the last, you know, he does the quick summary and at the end of restructuring he says because he had listened to his wife about the Greenman brothers and noodle cadoodle opportunity. He said, listen to your spouse parentheses following this advice. Won't guarantee capital gains, but the dividends are a sure thing, which I don't know, man, maybe I'm just, there seems to be a lot you could break out of that. And it's just a funny line to slip in at the end of the chapter. That's all. The broiness of Wall Street, the broiness of investing, and the the role of the wife, we see this in Seeking Alpha articles a lot, as a kind of weird trope of investment writing that I think probably owes something to Peter Lynch and to Greenblatt. I don't know. There's probably a, a good academic essay to write about the 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 wife misogyny and gender roles on Wall Street. I'm not accusing you of any of that, Daniel, but I just find it odd that wives have a very like particular role in these men's experience of the world. And it's not necessarily an egalitarian approach. I don't know. It's like, ah, listen to your spouse. Like you didn't know that already. I don't know. Well, I think there's, yeah, I think we don't need to go too deep here. I think there is what's normal and then what you know what you're talking about you'll see a lot on like articles about limited brands or about women's clothing companies or whatever where it's well my life likes it and as in most of you won't be familiar with this because most of you are men and i'm not familiar with it because i'm a man and i don't do that sort of thing but my life and so i think there's a little bit of that i but yeah it's it's a weird it's a it's a challenge because you just get stuck in your own head or in the community around you. Uh, not to make excuses for it, but I understand what you're saying. But I thought the joke. Was- Listen to your spouse for sure, <laughs> regardless of the capital gains nor the dividends. Okay, maybe we should. Start- non gap non gap accounting joke. I feel like it's an investment. Capital gains dividends. Yeah, that's that's sort of where I fall. So. It's a All good right. Daniel. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I did. I was right. We should cut this. We should cut this one uh, at a nice, concise forty-five. All right, let's cut it there. Good All stuff, right, Daniel. Mike. Looking forward to part work. Four. Listen, listen, listeners. Part four is coming up soon. Seekingalpha.com/slash/proplus. Don't forget. Thanks for listening to this week's Behind the Idea. I hope you enjoyed it. We're doing one last Greenblatt episode. So stay tuned for that next week. After that, watch out for coverage of past and new ideas as we're featuring a couple of new guests over the next few episodes. If you have a chance to leave us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts, we'd appreciate it. This has been a Seeking Alpha production. Thank you for listening, and see you next time on Behind the Ideas.